Welcome to the Wesley Memorial Podcast. Join us this Sunday at 1225 Chestnut Drive in High Point. Visit us on the web at wesleymemorial.org. Now here is this week's message. Our gospel lesson this morning comes from the Holy Gospel according to St. John, chapter 17, beginning at the first verse. After Jesus had spoken these words, He looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son, that the Son may glorify You. I have made Your name known to those whom You gave to me from the world. They were Yours, and You gave them to me, and they have kept Your word. And now I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them in your name that you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them in your name that was given to me. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost except the one destined to be lost, so that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world so that they may have my joy made complete in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but I ask you to protect them from the evil one. They do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. And as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they also may be sanctified in your truth. This is the Word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a pleasure for me to be here at Wesley Memorial. Your pastor, Jeff, and I got to know each other some years ago because a student introduced us, and it became pretty clear early on that we were kindred spirits. I appreciate so much not only how much he reads, I said to Jacob that it puts us all to shame, and the way in which he takes so seriously the teaching office of ministry. I have no doubt that he has schooled you well in the Scriptures. He is a blessing to me, and I know a blessing to you as well. And so I'm grateful for His letting me come and be among you. Would you pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in Thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. 
1952, in an attempt to provide a more up-to-date translation of the Bible, and one that spoke in an idiom more appropriate for people in the middle of the 20th century, the National Council of Churches published a new Bible, the Revised Standard Version. Now, the RSV was intended to replace the King James Version, which was read in many Protestant churches throughout the country. But with the publication of the RSV, they stirred up a controversy, a division in the church between those on one hand, the, call them the traditionalists, who preferred the beautiful, if at times archaic, language of the King James, and those on the other, we'll call them the modernist, who preferred a contemporary translation. Well, the good news is <clears throat> that tempest in a teapot is long since a thing of the past. In most Methodist churches, we read either the New International Version or the New Revised Standard Version. And yet, the language of the King James remains with us. If right now we were to recite together the 23rd Psalm, we would be using the language of the King James. And at Christmas time, when I think about Luke's story, you know the one that Linus quoted to Charlie Brown to explain to him what the meaning of Christmas was. I hear about a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. That's the King James. But perhaps that place where the King James has a lasting influence is here in the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer that we say today, that is King James English. And there too you see those archaic words, even in the beginning. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, what is the, when is the last time that you, aside from saying the Lord's Prayer, use the word hallowed? I think the only time we use it these days is either in an elementary school class when a teacher is trying to explain to children the origin of Halloween, All Hallows' Eve. Or, thanks to J.K. Rowling, we have Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, which has absolutely nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about today. The language of Hallowed has dropped out of our vocabulary. So what are we thinking of when we pray, Hallowed be thy name? The word in Greek, which is translated Hallowed, is often translated consecrate, to set apart for a holy task. Next July, in jurisdictions across the country, the United Methodist will be consecrating men and women for the office of bishop setting them aside for the holy task of leading the church. But the word also can mean to sanctify, to make holy. And this is the primary way in which the Scriptures speak about God's work in and through us. For instance, in Ephesians, when, God's, when Paul is describing the significance of Christ's death upon the cross, he says, husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church 
and gave himself for her that they might be sanctified. And then in Ephesians, and then in Romans, when Paul is describing his call to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, he says, I am called to proclaim the word of Christ to the nations, quote, so that they may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, or hallowed by the Holy Spirit. Sanctification, hallowing, is the work of God, except in one place, the Lord's Prayer. There, we are called to hallow the name of God. In order to explain what this means, there are two key concepts I need to unpack. The first is the idea of holiness. In ancient Israel, holiness is the very essence of God. God is holy because God is exalted. He is not one being among other beings. He is not a creature, but He is enthroned above creation. And what's more, He is perfect goodness. There is no fault, no blemish, no defect. He is purity itself. And because He is both pure and powerful, God's holiness is a terrible, fearful mystery. You remember when Moses was drawn up Mount Horeb by the light of the burning bush when Moses entered the presence of God, the voice of God coming out of the bush said, Moses, take off your sandals, for the spot on which you are standing is holy ground. You see, the idea was that his sandals were made of dead animal skin, and because they were dead material, they were viewed as impure and unholy. To stand in God's presence, you must remove what is unholy. And then there is our Old Testament lesson, Isaiah's account of his call. He gives a vivid description of the heavenly throne room that he had, and there you see God described in transcendence, exalted, high, and lifted up. And also God is spoken of as great by using the physical image and His train filled the temple. And the, cher and the seraphim, those angels who were gathered, bow and worship Him, not with many words, but simply repeating over and over, holy, holy, holy. This vision, however, was not for Isaiah a beatific vision, one which delighted his soul because of its aesthetic beauty. Rather, it was a terrifying experience, and Isaiah exclaims, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah fully expected that God's fiery holiness would consume him entirely this man of sin. God's holiness makes God radically other than we. But the second word we need to hear is the word name. Jesus doesn't tell us to hallow God, but to hallow His name. 
And that doesn't make sense to us because, you see, to us, a name is just a name. It's simply a label we apply to one thing to distinguish it from another. But not so in ancient Israel. The Israelites would not say with Shakespeare, what's in a name? A rose by any other name would smell as sweet. For Israelites, the name contained the very essence of a thing. It identified the thing and told you what it was. That is why Adam asserts his authority and dominion over creation by doing what? By naming the animals. And what's more, to name something is to establish a relationship. You remember the story of Jacob as he is sleeping there at the ford of the Jabbok River, waiting the next day to face his brother Esau, who is less than pleased to see him. There's a lot on Jacob's mind, and as he sleeps, God comes and wrestles with him. And by the end of the day, Jacob is exhausted. His hip is put out of place, and he finally says, Bless me, or I will not let you go. And God blesses Jacob by giving him a new name. He says, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and man and have prevailed. But it's not just that our name defines our relations. God gives us His name the poet in Psalm 9 says, Those who know the name put their trust in you, O Lord, for you, O Lord, have mercy on those who seek you. The point is, when Jesus gives us God's name, Abba, Father, we now know the name by which we may call upon God. And when we call upon Him, crying out for help, we know that He will not turn to us a deaf ear. That is why Jesus says, Ask whatever you will in My name, and it shall be given to you. Therefore, when we pray, Hallowed be Thy name, we are doing two things. First, we are confessing that God is our Father, and He is the Holy One of Israel, high and lifted up, who is clothed in awe and majesty. And because He is both purity and power, it means that there is secondly, we realize whenever we come into God's presence in prayer, we too are standing on holy ground. And therefore, like Moses, we must take off anything which is impure, any unholy thought, or better, like Isaiah, we must confess our unholiness, fully confident that the fiery holiness of God's Spirit will forgive and purge us of any impurity so that we, God's children, may be holy, even as our heavenly Father is holy. Hallowed be thy name. 
it is a confession of our vocation as well as the identity of our God. But I think the idea of holiness itself is an idea you and I have a problem with. You see, we reason quite naturally, if holiness is to be pure, then how can one possibly be pure in a world that is so full of corruption and evil? How can we maintain that godlike quality? And so we're inclined to doubt whether or not we can be holy. In fact, the only way we think we can be holy is to withdraw from the world. And this was precisely how the Pharisees misunderstood God's holiness. That's why the Pharisees rejected Jesus, because they said, how can this man be Christ? How can he be a holy man of God if he presumes to break bread with tax collectors and prostitutes? For if you associate with filth, you too will be made filthy. But in this morning's gospel lesson, Jesus challenges that conception or that misconception of holiness. The context is this. Jesus is preaching to His disciples on the night before He is betrayed. It is His farewell address to them. And as He's teaching at the very climax, He offers a prayer of intercession to the Father, praying for His disciples and praying for us, the church. And basically, Jesus says two things. First, He says, I have glorified you, Father, by revealing your name to those whom you've given me. For they have seen me, and in my face they have seen you. They have heard my words, and in my teachings they have heard your eternal word, which spoke creation into existence in the beginning. They have abided with me, and I have kept them in your name and I have kept them in your word, and I have kept them in your truth. And therefore, they've become like me. And because they are like me, even as the world hates me because it does not understand me, the world will hate them because they do not understand my followers either. But then, he does something unexpected. Just having said that he, you know, that he is giving these people to the world that hates him, you would think he would say, now I will keep them safe. But instead, Jesus says, though I am leaving this world, I am not taking them with me. For even as you, Father, sent me into the world, so I send my disciples into the world. And as you consecrated me that I might be your presence in the world, now I consecrate your followers that they might be a holy presence in the world. You see, Jesus is changing the way we think about holiness, and he's giving himself as the example. The ministry of the incarnation tells us what the ministry of the church should be. You see, Jesus, as Son incarnate, is both fully God and fully human. Because He is fully God, in Him we behold the image of God's holiness. 
And that is not a holiness which withdraws, which stands aloof, uninterested in creation. But the holiness of God is what Paul describes in Philippians as a self-emptying love revealed in the Son. But because Jesus is also fully human, He reveals to us what it means for mortals like us to reflect God's holiness. We neither withdraw from the world, nor do we conform to the world. You know the, when in Rome, do what the Romans do. But rather, our vocation is that our lives be a witness of otherworldly holiness in concrete form in this world. The movie Hacksaw Ridge gives perhaps the best illustration of what it means to be a holy presence in a world full of evil. Hacksaw Ridge is the story of Desmond Dawes, who was a conscientious objector during World War II. He was a young man who was raised in a family where his mother was the embodiment of Christian piety, and she instilled in him two deep theological virtues. One was a commitment to the Sabbath. The Sabbath was holy. One did not work on the Sabbath. And the second was, thou shalt not kill. And one night after Desmond wrestled a loaded revolver out of the hands of his intoxicated father, who was waving that gun in Desmond's mother and uncle's face, Desmond decided that never again would he pick up a gun or any other weapon of destruction. But then came a day of infamy, December 7, 1941. And Desmond felt a conflict within himself. On the one hand, he was committed that he would never take life. But he also could not stay back in the United States in a place of security where young men like himself were going to battlefields in Europe and the Pacific where they would not only fight, but many of them die and die agonizing deaths. So Desmond decided he would enlist in, as a field medic, he would go to war to save life, not to kill. But from the day one, Desmond did not fit in. His fellow soldiers looked on him as an oddball. To begin with, whereas many other GIs went to bed reading girly magazines, he was reading his New Testament. And then, on those times when he would, at the end of the day in the barracks, kneel to pray at his cot, he would be hit upside the head by a flying boot from one of his fellow GIs. They looked at him and thought, what does he think he's doing? Why is he trying to be so holier than thou? Who does he think he is? Holy Jesus. Desmond was an oddball because he was pious. He just didn't fit in. But the thing which infuriated not only his fellow GIs, but his commanding officers, was his absolute refusal to take up a gun. Eventually, his stubbornness in piety outweighed the army's stubbornness, and he was allowed to be a medic. And he proved himself as a brave medic at Guam, 
in Leyte Gulf, but the real moment of test came on May 3rd, 1945, when his unit was stationed on Okinawa. They received orders that they were supposed to attack a, a Japanese stronghold at the top of the Madai Escarpment, a 350-foot cliff pockmarked with artillery shells. The Japanese strategy was to allow the American GIs to climb the cliff, and then once they amassed there at the top, to open a massive artillery barrage, followed by a bonsai charge, which sent the Americans scurrying down the cliff. And that is precisely what they did that night. It was just the same, except for one thing. Desmond Dawes refused to go down. Knowing the torture that would be inflicted on those wounded GIs who fell into the hands of the Japanese, Desmond stayed and he went from wounded man to wounded man, pulling them, carrying them back to the precipice and lowering them down to safety. He did this for 12 straight hours and in the end he saved or carried down 75 men. That's at a rate of one man every 10 minutes for 12 hours. And each time he did it, he said a prayer. God, just let me get one more man. Two days later, they were to renew the attack there on Hacksaw Ridge. But that day fell on the Sabbath. And the commanding officers and the GIs, the very ones who had tried to get him kicked out of the army, and the very ones who looked on him and spoke to him in contemptuous language and cursed him, delayed the attack so that Private Dawes could pray. Yes, Desmond Dawes was a nut in the eyes of the world. He was a holy fool. But his courageous holiness bore such witness and made such an impression on the commanding officers that he was given the citation, the Congressional Medal of Honor. That is carrying holiness into the world. My friends, hallowed is an out-of-date word, but holiness is not because it is the essence of the God whom we worship here, and it is also the essence of our vocation. You and I are called to be holy fools, bearing witness to God's purity in a world filled with corruption. That is a weighty task, and that is why He gives us His Spirit. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.